Father, we ask that as we just gather around the scriptures, as we talk about important things like the kingdom of God, that you would speak to us. Not only would you speak, that we would attune our ears, spiritual ears, to hear what you are saying and, and then to act and respond. May we be doers of your word, not just hearers. Um, be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at this little se- series on the kingdom and we're looking at it through the, the parables, these beautiful stories, these stories that are thrown alongside life, stories about everyday things to capture something about the kingdom. And at home group on Thursday, we, we, were, we asked, what is the kingdom? So I thought it'd be good for us just to remind us of what that is, uh, just very briefly. Um, but I, I think I put it like this, the kingdom is wherever Jesus is king, at least at a basic level. It's much bigger than that, but there's an understanding. Or it's the place where God is in action, and God is in action everywhere. So the kingdom is vast and expansive and fills everything. Or as Dallas Willard says, it's the range of God's effective will. It's where what he wants done is done. So the kingdom is this big thing. It's the rule of God. It's the reign of God. It's where there's a king in the center of a Jesus. But it's bigger than the church. Yet the church is integral to the advancement of that kingdom, at least on, on the earth. Um, I think it's important for us to remember that. Otherwise, kingdom just becomes another word which we want to shun because we are Americans. We don't like kings and queens. We want to get rid of that word. So it's a really, actually really important to an understanding of how God works. And so reading the Old Testament is really helpful to shape us to get into the New Testament of, of an understanding of the kingdom because God was doing things with them as a kingdom. And he wanted to be their king. They wanted an earthly king. He wanted to be their king, a perfect, beautiful, kind, generous, loving. All those words were his king, but they wanted an earthly king who just abused them, mostly. And so let's not throw that word out when we hear it. Let's actually try and put it back into its perspective. Let's try and, and say, God, give me understanding so that it helps me to grow in what you want for me. Now, these parables are, that we read, so we'll read the one today. You know, they, many of them begin... The kingdom of heaven is like something. Um, these parables, are they, they're trying to give us a glimpse. They're trying to give us an inkling into what the kingdom is like. So each parable is trying to make a point about something about the kingdom. Um, and what we don't want to do is unpack them to every word and try and uh, allegorize everything so much that it actually loses context to what that parable is about. The parable is trying to make a point. And let's try and pick that up. Um, but as we listen to that, it's so it's in many ways kind of foreign to our ear. As Western Americans, we like things systematic. We're talking about this on, on Thursday Night in Home Group. We like things packaged. We want knowledge in packages, and we want you to give me the package of knowledge. We don't want to hear a story that makes me think. Because we are systemized people. We're a packaged people. Uh, we're an instant people. But Jesus told stories because actually the kingdom for us is, in some ways is quite a mystery. And the New Testament often speaks about this as a mystery. But a mystery has been made known, but you still got to figure it out. It's, it's, there's mysterious stuff about this. I mean, Romans 14, 17 says, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. And the context is religious laws and regulations about eating and drinking. 
And Paul's saying, well, it's, the kingdom's not about the regulations. The, the kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's kind of mysterious. Because joy comes and joy goes. and Sometimes you feel peaceful, sometimes you don't. What does it really mean? It's kind of mysterious. And unless we embrace that aspect of this whole understanding of the kingdom, we're going to, I think we're going to be disappointed because we want it now packaged nice and clean. I have the kingdom. And Jesus said, no, I invite you into this kingdom. You know, Enter my maze. Take your way around. But as you go, whoa, isn't that a beautiful flower in that part of the maze? Isn't this beautiful? Look what I did. It's, it's, it's a beautiful journey of discovering who the king of the kingdom is, where Jesus is king, how his rule works. It's not systematic laws. It's mysterious. It's love. It's kindness. It's generosity. It's patience. It's all those things. That change, to me, that changes the ball game of what it means um, to understand this. So let's read today's. Brian gave me three verses again. Thank you, Brian. Not all, they can be complicated, three verses, but he gave me three verses. He gives himself long bits of... I think he thinks I can't memorize long bits because I'm older, but maybe that's... I don't know. He put, before them, uh, uh, he put another parable before them saying, this is Jesus talking. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. Interesting, just sideline. Mustard seeds do not become trees, by the way. Unless there's a mustard seed that has not been discovered from ancient times today. It grows into a big bush. It doesn't grow into a tree. So is this an inaccurate story? Or is Jesus making a point? You know? So don't get lost in the details. Uh, uh, imaginations. <laughs> Book of Matthew, sorry. Matthew 13. You didn't know where, the, where all the kingdom parables were? No, I'm sorry. Matthew, Matthew 13, sorry. I'm going to blame Dan. I, I didn't forget it was Dan. Okay, he didn't put it up. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew 13, verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. That's how he left it. That's it. Bang. I mean, it's like, what? You know, what, what on earth does that mean? So I think if we've been around church a little while, and I think most of us have been around church a little while, we kind of, excuse me, <coughs> we've heard these parables and we, we've got an inkling of what they really are about. And I think at a surface level, or just as you read them, you get the idea what these parables are about. One is, was a mustard seed, is small and became something big. The other one is about something that was kind of hidden, you can't see, was put into something, and it grew, and it expanded. Um, but I think there's some things that we can learn from that that are really important for us today as we understand the kingdom and in the way that we are supposed to live in our world as believers, as people of the kingdom. 
So the, the, the brief understanding is easy. The application is really, really difficult. It's not easy at all. So I want to say, give you five points that I think are important from these two little parables and then centering on one. Is that okay? The rest you kind of get. Number one, these parables are talking about something small that over time and growth becomes something large. All right? Something small becoming something large. In Zechariah chapter 4, there's a beautiful verse that says that we do not despise the day of small beginnings. Because everything starts small and then grows. You know, Adam and Eve, one couple, there's, a, there's growth. One family, Abraham, is taken. You're going to be the father of many nations. And I will bless you and you will be a blessing to the whole earth. Started small, became great. So that's, that's a principle that we find often in the text. This idea of something small becoming something big. So the, at the heart of this parable is something small, a little seed, it's going to become a tree. Don't get hung up on mustard. Could have been a ketchup tree or Worcestershire sauce tree. You know, don't get caught up. But it's something small becoming something large. The second thing is that something hidden over time will become visible. We live in a culture where we want everything to be visible now. We, we want to be at the top of our game today. We want to be known and we want our own Wikipedia page that has many, many pages with all it. We want it now, but actually a life and a reputation and all of that starts hidden and grows over time until it becomes visible. Um, a seed, you know, and Jesus said, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it bears no fruit. So actually the invisible is a dying. It's, a germ, it's in that where germination happens and something beautiful begins to emerge. And sometimes the, the initial part of that is so slow, but then when something actually pops up out of the ground, it can grow really quickly. I'm amazed. We have this lemon tree in our backyard. It's about that tall. It's going to be costing me a lot of money as I pay Ruby. But she comes and picks them up. But it produces, I do not know how many lemons. I mean, literally, we pick up and I go two days later and another 30 lying on the, on the ground. I don't know how it does it. But when we planted that thing, it was little. And it, it's been there since for 15 years, as long as we've been in the house almost. Nothing happened. All of a sudden now, it just produces. I think that's how the kingdom is. Something hidden, something small, over time grows, and then suddenly it just begins to produce. That's how it's meant to be with our lives. Jesus actually gives us time to start small, start hidden. He doesn't put us on show day one. Keeps you hidden. That's why as leaders in the church, when someone new comes to the church, or new believer, we don't want to give you a public platform just yet. Because once you have it, it's... If we have to take it away, that's awkward and ugly. No, start slow, grow, let it naturally. Oh, it becomes visible. It's, it's the way of the kingdom. We do that with our kids. You know, unless you're a dance mom and you want your kids dancing at two with makeup on a TV show, and then you're, you, that's another ball game altogether. Generally, we protect our kids. We give them room to grow and grow. And then one day they become adults. So one small becoming large, hidden becoming visible, the third one is that it's very, 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 very slow process. Nothing fast about the growth of the kingdom. 
2,000 years later, at least since the Jesus part, when he incarnated and we're still going and it feels like we've gone backwards. We haven't, but it feels like that because it's still going. This is a long process. We're going to come back to that one. Number four, this growth from small to big, the idea is whatever comes out the other side is for the benefit of others. It's not for our satisfaction. You know, this tree, the birds will put their nests there. There's shade, there's protection, there's feeding, there's fruitfulness. Uh, the word to Abraham, small, you know, you'll become a great nation. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless you. You'll be a blessing. It's, it's always for the sake of others, never just for ourselves. So whenever we think about Jesus and his kingdom, if we make it about ourselves, individualistic, which is what we do as Western Christians, we make it about ourselves, we've actually missed the whole point of what the kingdom of God is about. Does that make sense? The kingdom of God is this expansive thing where we engage and we love and we care and we love our enemies and we love our wives and our spouses and our kids and we love one another. There's a sense of expanse where it includes others. So as you mature, your maturity needs to spill over and bless others. That's why it's a wonderful thing to mature. Kids, we have a lot of kids in our church, at least for the size of our church. Me, 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 me. It's all about me. You see maturity when one day they learn to share. And suddenly they care for another. Oh, something beautiful is happening here. That's how the kingdom is. Number five, this kingdom ultimately creates a permeating influence in the world and in God's universe. We need an influence. One of the things I've been praying for our church, I've never felt that we've got that. Lord, where is our place of influence as a community? I know we each individually have places of influence, but where is our place of influence as a community where there's a sense of, ah, we're a blessing to somebody. Does that make sense? I'm praying that this year. Did you get those five things? Small to large, hidden to visible, slow process, benefits others, and it has a permeating influence. I want to take number three, slow process, slow transformation. Now, we'll talk a little bit about us as individuals or as families, but I always want you to see it in the light of a growing kingdom, a broader than ourselves, but it, we have to make it applicable on in how do we live as individuals, how do we live as community or as families. So, in, Ecclesi- uh, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, when Moses later speaking to the people, reminding them of the covenant, he, God says this to them. He says, little by little, you will drive them out. This kingdom, this new nation that I'm taking into the promised land, I've brought you out of slavery. So I've redeemed you. I've brought you to the mountain and I've given you identity and I've explained who you are, that you are my chosen people, that you are the ones that I love. I've then... T- because of you, you, you didn't quite get it. I'm taking you on. You've gone on a journey here. You're going to go on a journey so that I can purify you and make you ready. But actually, I'm going to take you into the promised land. And the promised land, you're going to do it little by little. I'm not dropping an atomic bomb on Palestine and it'll be yours. I'm going to, you're going to go and wherever you put your foot, that will be yours. And that as applies to us as believers that little by little we advance the kingdom through our lives, in our lives, and we, wherever we put our foot spiritually, that be, we begin to take territory for the sake of the kingdom. 
Little by little. Keep this in mind. Keep thinking all these things in the light of Western culture. Little by little. Ecclesiastes 7, 8. One of those verses that I love. The, The end of the matter is better than its beginning. Patience is better than pride. Anybody can start, and I want it now. I want to start, and I want it now. But actually, the end of the matter is beginning, and it takes some patience to get to the end. You don't get it immediately. Hebrews 6 speaks about the people of God. Those that got, who attained the inheritance, did it through faith and patience. Through faith and patience, they inherited that which had been promised. Through faith and and patience. You see, if you get everything you want immediately, there's no need for faith. Because faith is rooted in a hope. Hope is something that's out there. If you get it everything immediately, there's no hope and there's no place for faith. It's, God can't develop you. So many of the times we ask God for things and he said, I want to give that to you. Let's just take a little moment because I want to teach you. I'm growing you. I want you to become something. What you become is more important than what you achieve and get. I want you to become something. I want you to become a kingdom person that represents the kingdom well. It's a slow, slow process. James 1.12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man, the person who? Perseveres. Perseveres means time. I can persevere, Lord. Can I have it tomorrow morning? I mean, that's how we often operate. Our kids are like that, aren't they? I know. I think the Thornburgs, the dessert, they can have cookies on Wednesdays. You know. Imagine it's now Thursday morning. Can I have my cookie? Yes, you can have it. Can I have it today? No. Wednesday. Wednesday's Wednesday. It was yesterday. Oh, oh, that's a long. Through faith and patience and obedience, you can get your cupcake. We do that with our kids. We do that around, but actually God, we are God's children. These parables are talking about something really, really important about kingdom way. How does the kingdom grow? How does the kingdom advance? Slowly. Ever so slowly. It's a tortoise and the hare story. Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit. It's it's our memory verse for this month. don't know how many of you are engaging in that. I hope you are. These are just spiritual practices we want to do as community together, Bible reading, so that we grow together. But one of the segments of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. Of the nine, one of them is patience. And what do we know about fruit? It takes time to grow. Plant a seed takes time to grow. Patience. So even if you want to grow in your maturity in the, in, in, the, in, the, in the life of God, have some patience. It takes some time. Slow transformation is the counter to the urgent and instant and immediate culture that we live in. Joe wants it now. But isn't that right? That's, I mean, the, the world we live in is instant. We want it now. When Amazon Prime messes up and it comes on the third day, We cheesed off, man. Are we not? Because we want it now. When you go to the store and what you want is not on the shelf, you're upset. 
But actually, a lot of the world doesn't have things on their shelves. They don't have delivery in two days. But now, I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy the benefit of that. I'm just saying we, it becomes so part of us that it actually steps outside of the realm of what God's doing. And then we get mad with God. We need to step back and oh, this is a slow process. Today is our 34th wedding anniversary. And we're not, and we're not done yet. Yeah? I think our marriage is fantastic. Linda will say, we've got a way to go. But what is the point? The point is that a marriage is something that matures over time, that you grow and you, you grow into each other. And at 34 years, we still find, oh, wow, we had conversations this week where we're just missing each other. 34 years in, I should have got it by now. I wanted to go on because marriage is something that goes on. When you can change wives once a year, you never mature. Ever. Someone once wrote, if you were um, Valentino, who's like the, you know, the big lover in classics or whatever, and you, you have a hundred women, well, you can just have one technique, one thing, and just, you just do it with a hundred people, and everyone thinks you're fantastic, but, you've only, but to actually love one woman your whole life and be creative and loving and all the things that you're learning, that's a whole new level of what it means to love. Someone said to me years ago, the grass isn't greener on the other side. It's only green where you water it. So as we invest, growth comes. As we invest, maturity happens. Marriage, friendships, God's community, the kingdom, our relationship with God, all of it takes around time and investment and effort to actually see the kingdom advance. Part of the problem was the church was doing really well until about 300 and something when Constantine became emperor and declared that the Roman Empire would now be the Holy Roman Empire and it would be Christian. So suddenly everyone was a Christian. But there was no spiritual processing, no spiritual transformation. All that was in the, in the pagan things came into the so-called churches and everyone was Christian. And so we got this instant, oh, oh you're a Christian. Oh, okay. What is a Christian? Well, but I am one. Does your life look like a Christian's? I don't even know what a Christian life meant to look like. Well, are you a Christian? Well, no one's told me because no one was. Te- there wasn't teaching. The whole role, there weren't enough pastors for the Holy Roman Empire. But there was this instantaneous thing that happened. We got it in packages, and we forgot the process. See, an instant declaration says it is. But there's no change for the kingdom. In fact, if you didn't say it is, you could be tortured and coerced and your family were beaten until you said, I am a Christian. That's not the way the kingdom grows. Kingdom slow, transformative. So I wanna, can I read? I want to read from Eugene Peterson. This book was written in 1980. Clancy likes this book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Discipleship in an Instant Society. In 1980, he wrote that. We're now nearly 40 years later. We're more instant than we've ever been instant. All right? Can I read three pages? Would that be all right? 
So if you want to close your eyes, don't fall asleep. Just listen. It's actually beautiful. Just so you know, the book is about the, the 15 Psalms of Ascent going up to the temple. So that's how it's built around. I'm just reading from the introduction. This world is no friend to grace. A person who makes a commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior does not find a crowd immediately forming to applaud the decision, nor old friends spontaneously gathering around to offer congratulations and counsel. Ordinarily, there is nothing directly hostile, but an accumulation of puzzled disapproval and agnostic indifference constitutes nevertheless surprisingly formidable opposition. An old tradition sorts the difficulties we face in the life of faith into the categories of world, flesh, and the devil. We are, for the most part, well warned of the perils of the flesh and the wiles of the devil. Their temptations have a definable shape and maintain an historical continuity. That doesn't make them any easier to resist. It does make them easier to recognize. The world, though, is protean. Each generation has the world to deal with in a new form. World is an atmosphere, a mood. It is nearly as hard for a sinner to recognize the world's temptations as it is for a fish to discover impurities in the water. There is a sense, a feeling that things aren't right, that the environment is not whole, but just what it is eludes analysis. We know that the spiritual atmosphere in which we live erodes faith, dissipates hope, and corrupts love, but it is hard to put our finger on what is wrong. One aspect of world that I've been able to identify as harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Our sense of reality has been flattened by 30-page abridgments. It is not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there is a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian discipleship is slim. In our kind of culture, anything, even good news about God, can be sold if it is packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for the long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate leisure. For some, it is a weekly jaunt to church. For others, occasional visits to special services. Some with a bent for religious entertainment and sacred diversion plan their lives around special events like retreats, rallies, and conferences. We go to see a new personality, to hear a new truth, to get a new experience, and so somehow expand our otherwise humdrum lives. The religious life is defined as the latest and the newest. Zen, faith healing, human potential, parapsychology, successful living, um, Armageddon, we'll try anything until something else comes along. I don't know what it has been like for pastors in other cultures in previous centuries, but I'm quite sure that for a pastor in Western culture in the latter part of the 20th century, the aspect of world that makes the, the work difficult 
makes the work of leading Christians in the way of faith most difficult is what Gore Vidal has analyzed as today's passion for the immediate and the casual. Everyone is in a hurry. The persons whom I lead in worship, among whom I counsel, visit, pray, preach, and teach, want shortcuts. They want me to help them fill out the form that will get them instant credit in eternity. They are impatient for results. They have adopted the lifestyle of a tourist and only want the high points. But a pastor is not a tour guide. I have no interest in telling apocryphal religious stories at and around dubiously identified sacred sites. The Christian life cannot mature under such conditions and in such ways. Friedrich Nietzsche, who saw this area of spiritual truth at least with, at least with great clarity, wrote, The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction. There, thereby results, and has always resulted in the long run, something which has made life worth living. It is this long obedience in the same direction which the mood of the world does so much to discourage. In going against the stream of the world's ways, there are two biblical designations for people of faith that are extremely useful, disciple and pilgrim. Disciple, Mathetus, says we are people who spend our lives apprenticed to our master, Jesus Christ. We're on a growing learning relationship always. A disciple is a learner, but not in the academic sense of a schoolroom, rather at the work side of a craftsman. We do not acquire information of God, about God, but skills in faith. Pilgrim, Parapedimos, tells us we are people who spend our lives going someplace, going to God, and whose path for getting there is the way, Jesus Christ. We realize that this world is not my home and set out for the Father's house. Abraham, who went out, is our archetype. Jesus, answering Thomas's question, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Gives us directions. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. One more paragraph. The letter to the Hebrews defines our program. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Isn't it powerful? Written in 1980. For, nearly 40 years later, where do you think we are? We are way more instant, way more down the road. There was no... Facebook in 1980, no Twitter, no texting, no cell, no cell phone, nothing. Didn't exist. No laptops in 1980. And as he's writing that then, kind of seeing something of, of Western culture. Jesus reminds us in his parables that the kingdom of God is something that grows slowly. Because it's about maturity, it's about character, it's about authority, it's about ruling and reigning. It's about not dominating culture, with, but by invading culture from the underneath and allowing the kingdom to grow so that people are won over. I come from Africa, it's a colonial um, continent. Pastors in the middle of Africa wear dark suits and ties. Why? Why? Because they were colonized. Something was imposed upon them. People didn't come in and win them from underneath. 
Jesus said it's like seed that becomes a tree over time. It's like leaven in the dough that becomes bigger. How does it apply to us individually as we go about this? I think, we, I think Jesus is asking us to live faithful lives every day, little by little, allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work of maturity and transformation, and we participate in that by embracing spiritual practices, community, life together, all those things. Mike read the Lord's Prayer. It's a daily prayer. It's daily prayers, your kingdom come, your will be done. In my life, in this world, your kingdom come. So when you pray that, your kingdom come, or you declare, Lord, I want to seek your kingdom first before anything else, you need to think what you're actually saying, because that's a big, dynamic prayer. You're asking for something very powerful to occur. Can I read one more thing from a year ago? Disappearing Church. Has anyone read Disappearing Church? Um, this, have you read, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. It's Mark Sayers. He's an Australian pastor, sociologist. If you've been listening to the podcast with him and John Mark called this cultural moment, a lot of it just rooted in this. So I'm going to read something from here. It's very, much shorter. Churches that recognize the power of real people must also harness the power of strong ties. Sociologists note that there are two kinds of relationships that make up networks, weak ties and strong ties. Social networking is brilliant at reaching and even multiplying weak ties, yet deep social change occurs when strong ties are built and mobilized. Strong ties are committed, long-term, intimate, reciprocal, sacrificial. Hear that? Can I say that again? Weak ties are Facebook ties. Let's have coffee. And we never phone the person ever again. But a strong ties, strong ties, strong relationships are committed, long-term, intimate, reciprocal, sacrificial. So we have a saying, people love community until they don't. They love the idea of community, but when community gets in your face, because that's what it eventually does, we don't like it. People love marriage until they don't. It's the same idea. In an age where we have cheap tools and technologies to grow churches and ministries rapidly through weak ties, we can forget that the church has always grown through strong ties. Rodney Stark, the, the sociologist of religion, has researched the explosive growth of the early church and notes the power of strong ties. For when someone was transformed by the gospel, those who had strong ties to them could not help but be affected by this change. Strong ties are not easy to develop and nurture. They are hard to develop. They are hard to, they are hard to develop programs around and harder to measure. Yet in a world of increasingly weak ties, they are one of the great advantages, advantages to be harnessed by the church in the West. What is that saying as we advance the kingdom? It's not standing on a street corner and preaching the gospel. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. It's building a relational link with somebody and building that relationship and being friends and having a drink and a meal. And through that, the gospel begins to advance and you begin to speak and they get brought into the orb of your community. 
It's a slow process. Does anyone know who Larry Osborne is? He wrote a book called Sticky Church down in Southern California. He said, weak relationships are built around task. Strong relationships are built around time. Kingdom is not built around tasks. The kingdom of God is built around time. With the tasks in it. There's stuff in it, but it's built over time. I'll close with this verse from Luke 9. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, when? Daily. And follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me.